so many things all over our history. In, in 1st of November to, uh, 1970, the, uh, you, you gave an, a very strong statement in support of uh, Palestinian struggle that time. So it, there is a history, there is a big history there. But we are in the moment that we're facing a very advanced imperialist ways of destroying our struggle. That's where we have to advance our connections and support together. We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of the speakers featured on today's show, as well as Christian Davis Bailey for allowing us to share their audio with you. I would also like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Romero Funes, our assistant producer, and today's audio engineer. Remember to visit our website at sotrueradio.org and follow us on Facebook, our handle on Twitter and Instagram at sotrueradio. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all, please stay Supported Community Radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO is proud to co sponsor Portland Folk Music Society concerts. The Spring Series concludes on Saturday, June 11th with Hank Kramer, an old fashioned folk singer from the American West. Kramer can play and sing more than a thousand modern and traditional songs. The Portland Folk Music Concerts are at the Reedwood Friends Church on Southeast Steel Street in Portland. For information, go to kboo.fm and click on Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is looking for a full-charge bookkeeper. Do you have accounting and administrative experience? Do you enjoy working in a highly collaborative team environment? Are you looking for a workplace with a mission? Or do you know someone who is? Go to kboo.fm to learn more about the essential functions of the full-charge bookkeeper and the qualifications we are looking for. To apply, please email your resume and cover letter to hiring at kboo.org 
by Sunday, June 12 at midnight. You can also apply by mailing your resume and cover letter to Kebu Radio, 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Kebu's financial health is our focus. Help us foster it. In 2019, Virginia joined just three other states in making Juneteenth a paid state holiday. Musician Pharrell Williams joined Virginia's governor at a press conference to make the announcement. July 4th, 1776, not everybody was free in celebrating their Independence Day. So here's our day. And if you love us, it'll be your day too. The tireless work of activists and community members has been surfacing African-American histories like Juneteenth and bringing them to wider audiences. For historian Laurenette Lee, telling these stories is difficult but worth it. It's like coming up out of quicksand. And, and the more you get it out there in the public space, the more just feel like this is why I do this work. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. Today on the show, we're celebrating Juneteenth with two women who are uncovering the stories of their communities. Laurenette Lee is a public historian and lecturer at the University of Richmond. She didn't grow up celebrating Juneteenth. Most people hadn't heard much about it till the 1990s. But today she shares the story far and wide and says celebration is long overdue. Laurenette, what is the story of Juneteenth? What should every American know and be taught? Um, I think it's important for people to realize that in 1865, when freedom was declared, not everyone was free. The enslaved people in Texas did not learn that they were free until June 19th, uh, 1865. Um, and that is when Major General Gordon Granger arrived with 2,000 Union troops. But even though that story is important, it is the continuance of this celebration that is equally important because American history has not been kind to us. American life has not been kind, but still people gather to commemorate and celebrate the end of slavery. And in many ways, that's reconnecting with people, with family members, just as they did immediately after slavery ended. What does it mean for Virginia to recognize Juneteenth as a paid holiday for everyone? On the eve of the Civil War, there were at least half a million enslaved people in Virginia. And in Richmond itself, where we have Shaco Bottom, where so many people were bought and sold and sent south and west because it was an economic hub. It means a great deal to see and understand history from the perspective of those who had been left out, who had been deemed uh, less than 
and in fact were not even considered human. To recognize Juneteenth is bringing humanity back into focus. Was it easy to get the state holiday, or did activists really have to work at it? Activists always have to work to make any change possible. It may appear that it only took a year or so, but it's always activists on the case, on the scene, pushing, advocating, establishing collaborations, building allies and trust to bring about change, especially because the way we have been taught Uh, People don't really appreciate other perspectives, but it's in communication with those who know another history, know uh, a different perspective, that we can begin to get some changes made, bring about more equity. You know, for centuries, Virginia has been called the mother of presidents, and people have traveled far to tour the plantations and the Civil War battlefields. But enslavement of half a million people is seldom mentioned, not even in the Virginia textbooks. Yes. And when you think about Virginia as being the so-called mother of presidents, what we don't see are the enslaved people, the enslaved families, the enslaved mothers on those plantations who literally were birthing children, infants that fed into an economic hub. It's hard for us to imagine that upon having a child, it could easily be sold away, that you would not have any control over your child's life, or much less your own. But that was the case for enslaved people, as well as uh, free blacks. Uh, There was always the threat of being kidnapped, Um, particularly parents had to endure that constant threat of their children being kidnapped and sold into slavery. Uh, And so the end of slavery meant that there was an opportunity to really live life fully. You know, you've been doing so much of this public history. We often call it hidden history or uncovering history. But are the histories really hidden or are they just less well known by white people mostly? I think it's a combination of both. The histories are less well-known by white people, but oftentimes um, black people have not known all of their history, not only because it had not been taught, but the elders didn't want to talk about the brutality of it. How can you make sense of the senseless to young people? And so I do think this is a, a moment of reckoning that's, though it is hard, it's necessary. You've been doing research to uncover a graveyard for formerly enslaved people right there on the University of Richmond campus. Who are they? Shelby Driscoll, who actually conducted the research, really dug deep into the primary sources and the secondary sources as well, um, and uncovered a world that we had not known of. We knew that, you know, it was owned by plantation owners, men of wealth, but we didn't know 
who would have worked that land. And that's usually the case when you look at this kind of history. And so this was really truly groundbreaking work. Um, and that's the kind of work that I find myself being drawn to. Uh, I remember at the Virginia Historical Society, now the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, I was on the team that helped create the database Unknown No Longer. It was a database of slave names. And in the work that I do consulting around Virginia Maymont, for example, um, we look at the names of people who had been left out of the history but who are really central, integral parts of our history. And so when we think about Juneteenth, when we think about, oh, Virginia designating this as a, a paid holiday, well, it's time. It's actually past time. So many people have given so much and received so little. You've said America has parallel histories, a black history, a white history. Do you think that we're beginning to share and merge those histories? I don't know that we're beginning to share and merge because we're just beginning to learn about it. And I think for some people, they're in shock and awe, disbelief, discomfort. And so there's a matter of we need to deal with all of that and think about what action steps we may need to make to bring about some equity and equality and justice. Because when you look at every sector of life from the womb to the grave, there's so many disparities. It's sad and discouraging, but we have to keep pressing on. Are you more discouraged now than before? You were digging deep into some of this history? Mm, no, when I'm digging deep, I'm in it. Because it, for me, it doesn't shut down at 5 o'clock. It, it follows me into my dreams, and I have nightmares. And, but coming up out of it after it's released to the public, the work that's done... It's like coming up out of quicksand. And, and the more you get it out there in the public space, the more just feel like this is why I do this work. Laurenette, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate your reaching out to me and your listening. Laurenette Lee is a public historian and lecturer at the University of Richmond. Forty years, Jim Crow laws split the predominantly black community of Halls Hill from surrounding white areas. Today, the Northern Virginia area is largely gentrified. Wilma Jones grew up in Halls Hill and has written a book sharing its stories. She says it's too late to save Grandma's house, but it's not too late to save her history. Wilma, you grew up in Halls Hill, a segregated community in Arlington, Virginia not so far from D.C. What was it like when you were growing up? Did you love it? 
Oh, I loved my neighborhood. I felt loved. I felt like it was a magical place because everywhere that I went, most of the people were either friends of my family or family. Um, black neighborhoods in Arlington were very unique because they had a large percentage of the families who actually owned their homes. So you had your great-grandmother, your grandmother, probably on both sides, if not in one neighborhood, maybe one was in a South Arlington black neighborhood and the other was in Halls Hill in the North Arlington neighborhood. But it was unique because it was very tight-knit and also because the government did things to try to wall us in. We had two parts of our neighborhood that were surrounded by walls. But in addition to keeping our people from going into the white neighborhoods, it also kept other people from coming into our neighborhood. So they were very insular and very super tight and cohesive. And I often say that you could do something wrong as a kid in one part of the neighborhood. And by the time you got home, your parents already knew because someone saw you and <laughs> called your mom. Tell me about your great-grandparents. They came to Halls Hill for jobs after the Civil War. Actually, the only one I really know for sure is my yeah. great-grandmother on my dad's side, yeah. who was enslaved. Her name was Elizabeth King. She was enslaved in Norfolk, Virginia, and she, with a group of other people, came to Arlington. They walked from Norfolk. Walked. That's 200 miles or more. Absolutely. And sometimes when I think that I can't make it, when I'm facing challenges, I remember that my great-grandma walked to Arlington from Norfolk, and I say with her blood running through my veins, I can do anything. Why were so many newly freed enslaved people walking to the Arlington area? Well, there were multiple reasons. I'd say the first one was its proximity to D.C. Um, D.C. didn't have segregation. And also because there was a, a, an area where they could buy a home. Of course, the prices were depressed because it was only black people here. Um, but the other reason, and one of the major reasons, was because following the end of the Civil War, um, there was a government department set up, a cabinet-level department called Freedmen's Bureau. Um, and if you, you'll find that a number of things in the Arlington area are named after John M. Langston. He was the first black congressman from Virginia, but he was also the inspector general of the Freedmen's Bureau. So black people felt like this is a place where we can be protected. So it was set up to train black people in trades, to give them education so they could learn how to read. And many of them lived there. There were like a thousand um, like row houses there. But then at the end of Reconstruction, when you know there was a pushback on black people actually you know becoming stand-up kind of citizens, they started running for office. White people in Arlington said, "Oh no," and um, they pressured the government and that Freedman's Village um, camp that was set up to help black people to, you know, become hopefully equal and give them, you know, a portion of their rights, even though we didn't get 40, 40 acres and a mule, that was ended. And that was when the beginning of um, major discrimination and Jim Crow and those kinds of things happened in the southern states. 
So your great-grandmother, who walked from Norfolk, became a maid in a community called Cherrydale, but you write that the KKK was active there, and many had to seek refuge. Oh, absolutely. The KKK was huge in Arlington in the 1920s and 1930s, in the beginning of Jim Crow. They were so popular that they sponsored a little league team, and every Sunday... Um, at the site of what is now a, a major shopping center here in Arlington called uh, Boston, e every Sunday they had cross burnings there. So um, in the 1920s and 30s, Arlington had a major uh, influx of KKK leadership. And um, George Rockwell's Nazi party actually was headquartered in Arlington, too. They got started in, like, the 40s and 50s. So Arlington always had a thread of, um, of white supremacist radicalism. You, you mentioned a wall around Halls Hill. You wrote that in the early 1900s, developers in Arlington got permission from the government there to build a wall around Halls Hill in other communities. Why a wall? They were building new developments in what was wooded areas that were near our community. And the leadership of what was called the Board of Supervisors at the time um, worked with the delegates to the Virginia State Senate and House, and they developed some legislation that was specifically for Arlington and basically what it allowed was and, and I, I characterize it like this when you go to look at a new build now and you go into the home they should they tell you you can have granite or marble you can have you know a master bedroom on the first floor or all of these options mm -hmm. having us that part of that wall was an option that was uh, provided to the people who were purchasing homes that bordered the black community. And so they got to choose whether they wanted brick, cinder block, or wood. And it was just an option, but it was an option that they all had to have because they wanted to make sure that black people could not, what we called, cut through white neighborhoods. And so we were basically walled in um, on two sides and the other side was a natural one where the highway went so there were only two ways in and two ways out of our neighborhood did they tear the wall down when you were a child no parts of the wall still stand when you were little did you get that that's why the wall was there absolutely we knew that absolutely we knew that white people didn't want us in their neighborhoods and they made that fairly clear um, when we would walk through, I mean, unfortunately, it's still happening now. Um, but yeah, when we would walk through a white neighborhood, uh, it was noticeable. And I can remember um, people, you know, especially when the schools were, our school was initially desegregated and we walked sometimes. We had a bus, but if you stayed after school for a program or for sports or something, when we would walk through the white neighborhoods, we, you know, there would be people who would see us and they would come outside and stand on their front porch until we walked past their house. So um, it was, we knew that we were not wanted. Would your parents say, don't do that? Did they worry about you? Oh, sure, they worried. They probably worried about me more than anybody else because I would speak my mind. But um, as long as we weren't doing anything wrong, 
um, I, I, our parents stood behind us 100%. So I didn't have any issues. And I really, I mean, it was, it's kind of like gravity. Racism is kind of like gravity back in those days. You know, you don't complain about gravity because gravity just is. You don't complain because, you know, your thing fell off the table because, it, the, you know, it rolled off because gravity. So at that point in time, even though civil rights and all of that was going on, at my micro level, it was, you know, it was racism. When I went to the five and dime store and that nasty woman, Miss Dottie, followed me around and watched my every move for the entire time I was there, I, it was just kind of the price of doing business. She wasn't going to stop me from going to get my batting ball. But I knew that she did not want me there. But I also knew that she wanted my quarter. <laughs> you know, so um, it, it was just a part of life. Um, and it is really, really sad. But I felt like... Um, the folks in the white neighborhood who didn't want to interact with me and us, I kind of felt bad for them because I felt like I, our life was a whole, even though we didn't have curb and gutter and maybe I had a black and white TV and they had a color TV or whatever, or their house was bigger, I felt like my life was more fun. Like my, my house, my life, my family, my neighborhood had more flavor because like you said, their grandparents didn't live close by. Um, you know, they didn't have that, super strong connection in their neighborhoods like we did. And that's why I said in my book, it was more than a neighborhood. You write about a woman in Halls Hill who sued Arlington County over the poll tax where you had to pay money in order to vote. She lost her case, took it to the Virginia Supreme Court, lost there, then took it to the Supreme Court and lost. That's political activism. Yes, Miss Jessie Butler. Um, I, when I read about that, I didn't know about that. I read about that and started doing, you know, all research in periodicals and yeah. was just super impressed with the fortitude that, you know, these folks in this neighborhood had and how, how they were not dissuaded um, because of the fact that truly they knew that they were fighting for the right thing. So um, it was a wonderful environment to grow up in. There was a woman who lived up the street from me on Dinwiddie Street whose name is Lil Brown. Um, they've named a community center after her. But she was, my father used to say, Lil Brown is a fireball. And um, <laughs> she was very often told no by the county board. And she didn't let it stop her. And she actually helped to found what's called the Arlington Community Action Program, which made a huge difference in the life of black people in Arlington because it provided um, pre-K and support for moms and things like that when the county, you know, was kind of not giving us the resources that were needed. So... I look at what people before me have accomplished, and so that's why I am motivated to tell the story and to keep doing research because these aren't all the stories. What's happening to Halls Hill today? It was an all-black community 100 years ago. What about now? It was all-black until 1979. Now, mind you, white people always owned some of the property, but they rented it to black people. Um, 
in the 1990s when um, the price of real estate really went crazy and then, you know, through like the early 2000s, Arlington had a complete shift. We had all kinds of infill development, um, big developers coming into the county. Uh, and so now our neighborhood is greatly gentrified and we are about 18% black. So, and I'd say probably of that 18%, I'd say maybe 10%, 12% are people who were three, four or five generations um, deep. And, and I think that the flavor of the neighborhood is still strong because many of the people who have moved into the neighborhood have embraced the history and the importance of the contributions of this neighborhood. Again, because, you know, the four children who integrated schools in the state were from this neighborhood. And a number of things from the other black neighborhoods as well are being saved but what we're also trying to do is to get them into like the Arlington curriculum and you know so that the history is something that lives on. I think of the kind of work you're doing uncovering this important history and it's not hidden history it's just not known to the larger population right? Exactly. They do not know because, in my opinion, because we as a community have not done a really good job of, you know, keeping it top of mind. So those are the kinds of things that we are doing now. And um, like, as I said earlier, one of the things that I am most focused on is getting this into our school curriculum. And now that we have a new superintendent and also because of the things that have happened from a, um, a racial equity and awakening perspective uh, in this country that um, I, I am finding it more and more. I mean, I had an experience where uh, a boy that I went to, he's a man now, but a boy that I went to elementary school with um, actually sent me a message um, which totally touched me, and I, I just couldn't believe it. I had not seen him since sixth grade, and he contacted me and said that he read my book and that George Floyd led him to read my book. He said he had heard about the book, but he had procrastinated. But when everything happened and, you know, it was kind of like you can't ignore it anymore, he went back and read and purchased the book and told me about how the book impacted him, how he had to come to the realization that his parents were racist. And they weren't out-and-out racist, but he actually said that we have to basically wrestle our demons, our racial demons, in the light. You know, we've got to bring this stuff to light. And it made me feel like this is one of the reasons that this book is important is because it is making people see the other side because I don't think that our story has been told by us enough for people to hear it. I, yeah. I try to express it and say, you know, put yourself in my place just for a minute. You know, I'm a five-year-old. I go outside. I don't have sidewalks. I've got this tar gravel street, but I get in the car with my dad and we go to the Safeway every Saturday and I see 
three blocks from my house across Lee Highway, how the white people live on Buchanan Street. They have sidewalks. They have asphalt streets. And their parents have this, pay the same level of tax that my parents pay. I said, so, you know, when you look at it from a kid's perspective, I think that it helps them to see it in a different light. Wilma Jones, this has been wonderful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good